Hear now God's word. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Pray with me together as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, we come to your word today with reverent hearts and expectant hearts. Would you be with us and would you help us, Father? to understand the meaning of these words. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate to our minds and especially to our hearts the meaning and the significance, the import of these words which you have revealed for our profit, for our benefit. And Father, as we come to understand, may we come to trust. May we come to grow and thrive in faithful confidence because you are our faithful God. And so may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I chose this passage this morning because there have been a lot of sorrows among us recently 
to attend to with prayer, haven't there? Many among the flock of God here who are feeling the deep pain of loss, many who are going through the the sort of squeezing, crushing pain of physical affliction, illness, and suffering. Many who have found themselves walking down dark roads and deep valleys. And in those kinds of places and during those kinds of times, it might be tempting for God's people, and it often is tempting for God's people, and we even see examples of this in Scripture, how it's tempting in the deep, dark valleys of tribulation and affliction and sorrow when it seems unrelenting and like there's no light at the end of that tunnel. It can be tempting to wonder about the goodness and the faithfulness of God towards us. Has He forgotten us? Can we trust Him? Can we really depend on Him? Has He left us? Has He abandoned us? Is He angry with us? Is He done with us? Has He forgotten to be gracious to us? Has He closed off His compassion and kindness towards us? Those are the kinds of questions that Asaph asked in Psalm 77 as a very godly man and the leader of the worship in the temple of David. Job wondered in the Old Testament more than once during the long months and and probably even years of his unrelenting affliction, he wondered whether the goodness and the faithfulness of God had dried up and turned away from him. Jeremiah needed, in Lamentations chapter 3, to call to his mind deliberately in the midst of great distress, the unchanging truth and reality of God's unceasing steadfast love and unending mercies and great faithfulness. There are all kinds of other examples in Scripture and there are all kinds of times in our own lives where, where the hard circumstances that we face have been ordained by God for this very reason to remind us And to continue to train us to call those same unchanging realities to mind and avoid the temptation to think that the unchanging realities of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness, of God's mercy, to avoid the temptation to think that those things about God are contingent somehow upon our circumstances, our experiences, or something to do with us. The bedrock of our hope and confidence has to be that God is who God is no matter what happens in my life and that He never ever changes. He is unfailingly faithful and He does love us unceasingly and He is merciful and He is with us through the deepest of waters and the the most fiery trials of our lives. So in Isaiah 50 here, our gracious God helps us to rest specifically in His his faithfulness by helping us to know that His faithfulness never ever depends on us, on what we do, on what we don't do, on what we go through, on our circumstances, no matter what they are. 
The faithfulness of our God is inexorably anchored to His holy, unchanging, unchangeable character and nature as the God who He is and always has been and always will be yesterday, today, and forever. And faithfulness of God is is tied to the promises and the purposes that God has established for us, for our lives, as we'll see in this chapter, before we ever even came into being. So far is God's faithfulness from being dependent on us and what we go through and what we do. It was anchored to His purposes which were proclaimed infallibly in eternity past before, before we ever came on the scene at all. Which is greatly, greatly comforting for His people to know. God's faithfulness is as eternal as the God who He is. So I want to take this chapter in together with you today. And I want the Lord to to speak His great faithfulness to our souls. Chapter 50 of the prophecy of Isaiah is a part of a group of chapters from 49 to 53. We're familiar with Isaiah 53 that we read so often around Easter time, resurrection time, Good Friday time, revealing the suffering nature of the servant of the Lord who would come and, and heal us from sin and death by the stripes that He would bear by being crushed by the Father for our own iniquities. So this chapter here is a part of a, a greater complex of chapters where God is revealing that in His great faithfulness and in His great redeeming mercy, He's sending this servant into this world who's, who's going to bear the heaviest burdens of His people for them, the burdens of sin and death, so that by the suffering of this servant of the Lord, we might be healed eternally. And redeemed forever from sin and from death. And lavished with all of the blessings of God eternally. And of course we know from the fulfillments of the New Testament Scriptures that this suffering servant of the Lord who's revealed in these chapters is the Lord Himself. The Most High God. God the Son incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, chapter 50... The servant of the Lord calls his people to rest in the eternal faithfulness of God in spite of what's going on in their lives. Rest in God's trustworthiness. Rest in God's absolute dependability no matter what's happening in your life. You don't ever have to wonder if God is faithful. In Isaiah 50, the people of Judah, that's who he's writing to here, the people of the southern kingdom, they were doubting God's faithfulness towards them. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with whom I sent her away? He's, He's speaking rhetorically here. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, For your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Everything that God says in this chapter is cast in the context of those two rhetorical questions right there in chapter 1. Where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Which Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And as we think about what those questions mean, they're picking up on an attitude that God 
had confronted in his people back in chapter 49 and in verses 13 through 15. So glance up there for just a second. Verses 13 through 15 of chapter 49, where the prophet says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. God is saying to his people, you ought to be rejoicing. You ought to be full of praise. Why? For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on the afflicted. This is who God is. This is how He has revealed Himself to be. This is is what He has been to them all along. He's been merciful. He's been kind. He's been compassionate. He's been comforting. But their attitude has doubted and denied all of that about Him. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. He's not been good to me. He's not been kind to me. He's forgotten me. Was what they were tempted to say and were saying in their hearts. To which God replies, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? God is saying, look, your attitude is all wrong. Like a mother to her precious child, I have not, I cannot, I will not forget you or forsake you. But they thought that he had. Why? Well, because there was suffering in store for them. And in the context of Isaiah's prophecy here to them, to the southern kingdom of Judah, the reason for the suffering that they were going to endure was because of God's judgment against years and years of their unrelenting and persistent sin. Now that's not always the reason in God's word why people suffer and why God ordains hardship in people's lives, right? Job didn't suffer because God was punishing him for some specific sin. Jesus certainly didn't suffer because God was punishing Jesus for some sin that Jesus had committed. And we're assured throughout Scripture that there are many reasons why God ordains for us seasons of affliction in our lives, not to punish us, but to refine us and to train us and to strengthen us and to grow us in our dependence on Him. But here, the reason was that God was sovereignly responding to sin in their lives. But again, the purpose of the suffering was not going to be their destruction, but their purification. So the whole first half of Isaiah's prophecy is a message about God's coming response to their persistent sinfulness. And when they hear about this, when they hear that because you wouldn't repent, the judgments of God are going to come upon you, when they hear about it, they cry out, oh no, God's forsaken us. Something's something's changed about God. There's something that we can't trust about God. He's turned His back on us. He's forgotten about us. He's forgotten about all the promises that He's made to us. He doesn't care anymore about us. And what's at the heart of that kind of an attitude or that kind of complaint? What's at the heart of it is this assumption that we deserve pleasant things from God's sovereign hand and that when God's purposes and providence in our lives are painful, then it must be a sign of His unfaithfulness because He ought to be giving us whatever we want. 
That was the attitude of these people. And so when God said to Judah, who in their sinfulness certainly didn't have any reason to expect good things from him, when he said judgment's coming, their attitude wasn't, right, well, well, we deserve it. It's just, it's fair. It's the punishment that fits the crime. That wasn't their attitude. Should have been, but it wasn't. Their attitude was to lay the responsibility for their suffering on God. Their first instinct, their sort of reflexive assumption was, the only reason that all of this is happening to us is because God isn't giving us all of the good things that we're supposed to get. He's forgotten us. His promises aren't any good anymore. we We can't trust Him. We can't rely on Him. Because he's forsaken us. He's abandoned us. Poor us. And that's the same attitude now that God is confronting here. Again, in these first three verses of chapter 50. He's left us. He's forsaken us. He's divorced us. Unjustly, they say. And the clear implication is that they think and they feel like the real problem isn't them. It's God. God has ceased to be faithful to them, they think. And in reality, which is going to get exposed here, it's the opposite. And so in response, God picks up the language of faithfulness in human relationships to show them and to prove to them that in fact, He's not the unfaithful one. He's abundantly faithful, but they have been unfaithful. In fact, He's always and unchangeably faithful. In Judah, the people were like children complaining that their father had unjustly divorced their mother and left them out in the cold. So God says rhetorically, where's the certificate of divorce with which I sent your mother away? And the point, of course, is there isn't one. God's speaking ironically. Even in light of the realities, see, of their sin... And of the discipline that was going to come on them because of their sin, even even in light of all of that, God hasn't divorced them. God hasn't abandoned them. Hasn't left them. Hasn't cast them off. But their attitude, their perspective is that He has. And they see themselves as like servants in the household of an unfair unjust, unkind, cruel master, servants who haven't done anything wrong. They've just worked really hard and tried their best. And they're not worthy, at least, of how he's treating them now. So they're putting themselves off as as the victims of God's coldness and harshness, as if he's just sort of callously sold them off to some creditor that he's in debt to. They were good and faithful servants, but but God sold them in order to pay off a debt. As if God said, well, I owe this person a debt. I don't have the money to pay the debt. How am I going to pay the debt? I know what I'll do. I'll just sell off some of these worthless slaves and wash my hands of the matter. Is Is that how God is? Is that who God is? No. Absolutely not. Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And the answer to the rhetorical question again is, none of them. Why? Well, first of all, because he doesn't have any creditors. He doesn't owe anybody anything. 
because he's God. To even suggest that the almighty, eternal, great I am, the omnipotent sovereign of the whole universe has some creditors out there that he's in debt to, that's just absurd, isn't it? Of course it is. God doesn't owe anything to anyone. And secondly, God's saying, look, not only do I not owe anybody anything, but this isn't who I am. He's not this cold-hearted, capricious tyrant who doesn't care about his servants which is what they've made him out to be so their whole attitude is absurd really what what they've done is by overestimating themselves they've completely underestimated their god he he's saying to them listen none of what's happening in your lives and none of what's going to fall on you in terms of judgment and hard circumstances, none of that has anything to do with any unfaithfulness in me, God is saying. It's all because of your unfaithfulness. And so that's why he says there at the end of verse 1, Behold, it's for your iniquities that you've been sold. It's for your transgression that your mother was sent away. they got nobody to blame but themselves. Judgment's coming. Exile's coming. They're being sent away, but the responsibility lies squarely on their own shoulders. And in terms of him, in terms of God himself, the the message is simply that God's faithfulness doesn't depend on anyone or anything outside of God himself. I don't stop being faithful when you stop being faithful, God says. His faithfulness isn't contingent upon or conditioned by our circumstances or what we do or don't do. Praise the Lord, right? Because if it was, we would have no hope. His faithfulness, and that word just means trustworthiness. It means dependability. His dependability is entirely defined by His own eternal nature and unchanging character god is faithful that's what he's proclaiming that's what he's proving here in these opening verses he's always faithful just by virtue of who he is as god he's the one who came to them in the first place verse 2 says i i didn't answer some summons you didn't do something so magnificent that i became indebted to you and owed you some response of goodness and kindness to you i came to you just out of the goodness that i am god says But when he came to them, they didn't even want him. They didn't receive him. He's the one who called them, but when he called, no one answered. E.J. Young, Old Testament scholar, says, Whenever God called to his people, no one responded. Blind and deaf, they wandered on their own way into transgression, not heeding the divine presence and the warnings. So now, here they are having ignored God and ignored His voice and followed after their own way, and they find themselves on the the threshold now of sovereign judgment because that's what their sin has brought them to. And the prospect of that has them feeling desperate, of course, hopeless. And so now, God is going to be extraordinary, as He always is. And in keeping with the whole theme of the book of Isaiah as a whole, God moves from revealing his faithfulness in in a sort of negative sense to to a very positive sense. From from speaking in rebuking terms to speaking in redeeming terms. 
The whole first half of the book of Isaiah is a, is a proclamation of judgment. Judah has sinned, and God is just and righteous, and so in His justice, judgment is coming. And so, contrary to what the people who are going to be judged think, judgment does not mean a lack of God's faithfulness. It means the expression of His faithfulness as the Holy One in response to their sin. But then, He doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't just leave them going, Oh, you brought this upon yourselves, you lousy sinners. In the whole second half of the book of Isaiah, He proclaims Himself to be the merciful Father and the loving Shepherd who will at great cost redeem His people and deliver them. Right around chapter 40 of Isaiah, the the focus shifts entirely so that the spotlight is put on the faithfulness of God demonstrated in His mercy. Judgment's going to come from the faithful hand of the Holy God, but it's not going to last forever. Mercy's going to follow. It's the same thing as God had said to Jeremiah, right? In Lamentations chapter 3, the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God says, look, at the end of the day, I want you to know that I'm holy. I want you to know that I hate sin. I want you to know that I judge it justly. And I want you to know how merciful I am. How compassionate I am. How great my steadfast love is in spite of sin. So in the whole second half of the book of Isaiah, God proclaims this same mercy, the abundance of His steadfast love that He had proclaimed to Jeremiah. And He goes infinitely beyond anything that the people could ever possibly claim to deserve from Him and promises them blessings beyond their wildest imaginations. And so it's the same thing here. In in chapter 50 specifically, God has shown that His judgments don't indicate a lack of faithfulness. And He proclaims that in His faithfulness, He can and He will mercifully redeem them. So verse 2, is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? That's sort of what they were saying. God's forgotten how to be gracious, I guess. No, no. Have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their carpet. He's talking to Judah like he talked to Job, right? In the midst of affliction, in the midst of painful circumstances and suffering, God is saying, look, don't forget who I am. Don't forget the almighty power. Don't forget everything that I've done in the past. There's nothing in this whole universe that can keep me from redeeming you and delivering you if and when I want to, including you. You cannot outsin God's grace. Isn't that the greatest and most secure anchor for rock solid hope in our lives? Even to these hard-hearted, recalcitrant sinners in Judah, the faithful God says, I can redeem you, even you. I can deliver you, and I will. How much more can we trust Him? How much more can we hope in Him when, like Job, our sufferings and our sorrows are not because of His responding to some sin in our lives? 
but as Hebrews says, are, are reflections of his fatherly love and discipline in our lives to refine us and to train us for righteousness and to help us to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. If God can say to these sinners, I can and I will deliver you, he can certainly say to us when we're suffering, not because of some sin that he's punishing, that we can trust him. That we can trust him. Uh, people who, people who shrug off the definition that God gives of Himself in the Bible, people who insist on denying the sovereignty of God in in everything and in the salvation of His people, people who insist on making redemption some some cooperative effort between us and God, I think they just short circuit this hope. Because I'll tell you what, if any of it depends on me. Then, then I don't have any reason to hope because I know how prone I am to failure and wandering. But if the eternal promise of forgiveness and justification and sanctification and glorification and my eternal inheritance in Jesus, if all of that hangs and depends not, not on me but on the predetermined will of God, on what He has purposed to do, and on the work of God the Father and God the Son on the cross and God the Holy Spirit in my life, decreeing and enacting and securing and guaranteeing my eternal redemption, that's when there's hope. Hope hangs on God's faithfulness. He can and He will redeem when and who He wants to. If God is for us, who can stand against us? So, That's what's being revealed here. Our God is the one who spoke everything that is into being, out of nothing. He's the one who set the stars in their place. He's the one who controls the heavens. He's the one who created the whole universe. So can you trust Him? Of course you can. Is He dependable? The only reason He wouldn't be is if His faithfulness was dependent on something outside of Himself. And could be changed by me or something else in this creation. But it can't because He is the Lord and Almighty Master of all of it. He is faithful. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He is not unable to save, to redeem even the most stubborn, hard-hearted, and wretched of sinners. His very nature of God is the infallible guarantee of the sureness of that promise. So look at verses 4-9. through Now God's going to pull back the curtain. Having said, I am faithful just because of who I am. He's going to pull back the curtain and reveal the fullness of the glory of what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of His faithfulness and love. Israel's challenged it, right? They've doubted. They've denied His faithfulness. So now God says, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you just how eternally and infinitely faithful I am. And this is where we see just how massively relevant the message is to all of us. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Whatever the reason is for the hard trials and the dark roads and the, the, the deep valleys that we go through in our lives. In verse 4, the servant now of the Lord begins to speak. He says, 
the Lord God has given me, remember this is the servant, the one who will suffer. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious and I turned not backward. Anybody here weary? With the burdens of life in this world? If you're not, you will be. And we all have been, we all are, we all will be. Let the Word of God sustain. The servant ascribes to God this name, this phrase, the Lord God. That's a Hebrew phrase, Adonai Yahweh. It's used about 300 times throughout the New Testament. Most of those in the prophets, 25 times here in the book of Isaiah, often spoken by the lips of the servant here in chapter 50. Adonai Yahweh is who God is. It's what God is. It's the perfect way to refer to God when you're talking about His faithfulness, which is what this chapter is all about. The word Adonai means Lord, Master, the Sovereign One, the Exalted One, the Maker, the Owner of everything that there is in the entire universe. And the word Yahweh is that covenant name. Jehovah is that covenant name that God took for Himself way back in Exodus chapter 3. I am the self-existing one. The one without a beginning, without an end, without a maker. The one who depends on no one. The one who depends on nothing. But the one whom all things and everyone depend on for their very existence. And the one who in Exodus was powerfully faithful to bring his people out of oppression and bondage in the land of Egypt. That's who he is. The Lord God, the sovereign, self-existing, all-powerful, faithful God who is the Lord of everything in the whole universe says that He has given the servant, His begotten Son, a learned tongue with which to speak to us. And so anything and everything that He says is faithful, is trustworthy, is dependable. One Old Testament scholar says, this combined name, Adonai Yahweh, lends an unmistakable tone of impressiveness to everything that the servant says. Whatever he speaks is truth, because the covenant God who has all power over all creation is the one who has given him this tongue and these words to speak. This God who has clothed the heavens is the one who has equipped his servant... And given him this ready tongue, this expert tongue, a divinely powerful and precise tongue with the perfect message if you're weary. And of course, as we go along in Isaiah, as we get into the New Testament scriptures, we learn the awesome truth that this servant that's being revealed here hasn't just learned things from God, he is God. Emmanuel. God with us. The one who in the beginning was God and took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's His prophetic ministry of of proclaiming powerful truth that's being revealed here in these verses. And the point is, 
the word of God, the word of God through the servant, the word of Christ is faithful and powerful because who he is as the sovereign Lord. So what's the word that God has equipped him to speak? The purpose of his words is to sustain those who are weary. Isn't it Jesus who says, Come unto me all who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, look at verse 4 here. It says that the Lord God has prepared the servant's tongue to speak these sustaining words to the weary. And verse 5 says that the Lord God has opened up his ear to hear what this sustaining word is. And that when the servant heard this message that God wants him to speak to all who are weary, that he wasn't rebellious towards it. He didn't turn away from it. And that tells us what the words were that the Lord spoke to the servant in order to to speak back to us in order to help and sustain us when we're weary. When the Bible talks about people who are weary, it doesn't just mean those who are physically tired, those who need a break physically. Mostly it means weak, lost, fallen, helpless sinners who don't need a break, they need a Savior. The weary are a bruised reed. And a smoldering wick, as Jesus calls us in Matthew chapter 12. And he's quoting from this whole section in the book of Isaiah. And he's applying that to himself. You're bruised. You're you're smoldering because of sin and death and the curse. But I won't snuff you out. I won't break you. I'll save you and I'll make you whole. So the message there is the same as it is here. God is a God who is both holy and merciful and His mission is to bring divine judgment together with sovereign grace for the glory of God and the salvation of His people and He's going to do it at the cross. That's the message, the the word that the servant hears from the Lord God. God says to the servant, you're going to go suffer for these people that they might be healed And that's supposed to give us comfort and strength. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's everything that he's going to spell out in bright, vivid details over in chapter 53 about what the servant will do in order to heal the people that he's sent to save. And he's preparing us for it right here. The words that he would speak are these these words, the good news that the servant of the Lord is a suffering servant who is faithful enough to heal us by his own wounds. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To bear upon himself our own iniquities and the punishments of God that we deserve. So, and he says, when I hear God say that this is what I need to do in order to bless you people, you weary people, I don't turn away from it. I embrace it. Now listen, what these verses are doing is giving us a glimpse into what theologians call the eternal covenant of redemption. Don't worry, it's just a fancy theological label for what the Bible reveals about the fact that there was an agreement between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past. Before the foundations of the world were ever laid, before the words, let there be light, were even spoken, let alone before you or I ever came on the scene, 
before the world was, when only God was, the, the Father, God the Father and God the Son made this agreement together that when the world was made and when it was plunged into sin and subjected to the curse, and when we came and inherited that curse, that the Son would come and by His own suffering and death bring us home to God. They made this agreement, this pact, this covenant together in their faithfulness in eternity past, which means for absolutely certain that the faithfulness of God doesn't depend on me because I wasn't even there. Didn't depend on anything that I had done or wouldn't do because I hadn't done anything yet. It all depends on Him who is eternal. It all depends on who He is in His unchanging glory and what He has purposed and promised to do before the world or we ever even came into being. So see, in verse 5, that's the word that the servant's ears have been opened up to. This, it's this eternal, sovereign plan and purpose of God to glorify Himself through the high priestly work and the ministry of God the Son by sending Him to suffer and sending Him to die and be pierced and be crushed for us, in our place, for our transgressions. And the servant says there in verse 5 that when God said, here's what's going to happen back in eternity past, you're going to go do this, this, this purpose, this plan. When, when the son said, I heard the plan that I would suffer and die, I was not rebellious towards it. I didn't go, what are you talking about, Dad? I'm not going to go do that for people that don't even exist yet. No. He turned not backward. He was not rebellious. Those are, um, let's call them inside of the cup kinds of words. Those are attitude words, heart words. Rebellious means obstinate or stubborn. It's, it's, it's that, that inner resistance that produces outward defiance. And Jesus, the servant of God, the son of God, had none of that when the covenant of redemption was forged between him and the Father in eternity past. There was no resistance in his heart and mind when they agreed that he would come and suffer and die in order to reconcile people to God. No hesitation, no arguing, no trying to, no trying to wriggle out of it. Even though his ministry is infinitely harder than, than any prophet or priest or servant who came before him or will ever come after him, he is infinitely more faithful to do it. He is infinitely more trustworthy. He is infinitely more dependable. And the gospel is the proof. His nature is the proof. And then the gospel is the proof. Think about, by contrast, think about Moses. When God gave him a mission, how did he react? Right? God met him at the burning bush. He said, you're going to go back into Egypt and you're going to confront Pharaoh. Well, Moses obeyed, but not without some objection, some resistance, right? Trying to make excuses and maybe say, oh, I think Aaron would be better at this, and I'll just stand in the corner and watch, right? There, there's not an ounce of that in Jesus. What about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? Was his ministry without complaining? Cursed be the day on which I was born. 
The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who, who brought the news to my father and said, a son is being born to you, making my father very glad. But Jeremiah is saying, I'm not glad I was born because my life stinks. See? More than a little bit of self-pity and self-loathing and, and complaining in Jeremiah's experience as a prophet and servant and messenger of God. And we go, well, of course, look, look what they had to go through. Cut the poor guy some slack, right? But Jesus went through more. And no complaints came off of his lips. Like a lamb before his shearers, he remained silent. How about Jonah? When he was called by God to go somewhere risky and preach something unpopular, he said, I'm out of here. And he hightailed it out of town. Not Christ. Not Christ, not the servant of the Lord. He turned not backward. There was no hint of resistance or rebellion or complaining or discontentment or quitting. There was just pure faithfulness. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Those things happened to Jesus. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. They spat upon him. They ripped out his beard. They beat him. They flogged him. They scourged him. They nailed him. And he said, I'm not going to flinch. I'm not going to turn away from it one bit. There's majesty in these words, right? Jesus gave his back and cheeks willingly to that abuse. That means he's in complete control of all of it, right? He's the one who says, no one, no one has the authority to take my life from me. I'm the incarnate God, but I will lay it down. So he doesn't say here that men beat him and pulled out his beard and spit on him. He says, I, ga- I gave my back to them. I gave my face to them. He willingly threw himself into the worst and most heinous and most degrading and most disrespectful and hateful and brutal kinds of abuse and insult and sin that man is capable of. Verse 7 says he he set his face like a flint, hard, not cringing. He was undaunted. He was determined. He knew that through all of that suffering and abuse, he wouldn't be put to shame for the, for the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews 12 says. He endured the cross. For the joy of glorifying the Father by putting divine justice and divine mercy together on display, and for the joy of loving us with this redeeming, saving, justifying love, the joy of pulling us out of the pit of destruction... And setting our feet on the eternal rock for the joy of reconciling us to himself, he endured the cross. He set his face like a flint. That's how faithful he is and always has been and purposed to be since eternity passed before the world was ever created. He made this covenant and agreement with God the Father to come and do that, to redeem us and deliver us and lavish us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by suffering for us without complaint, no quitting, 
for me, for you, for the glory of the Father. And so the question that's posed to us is, can you trust Him? Given the Almighty God who He is, given what He covenanted to do for you before you ever were, giving the unflinching attitude by which He came and did it, can you trust Him? Can you depend on Him? Is He faithful? Verse 8, he talks about vindication. He who vindicates me is near, so who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. Again, reminds us of Job. Behold, the Lord God helps me, so who will declare me guilty? What he's saying is, when I came into this world and suffered and bled and died, for the sins of the people, it was for the sins of the people. It wasn't for any sins of myself. Nobody treated me the way they treated me because of something that I did in order to deserve that. It was, it was for you. And the Lord God vindicates that. The Lord God testifies to that. Legally, judiciously, forensically. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is pure. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is suffering for no guilt of His own. No one can ever say the reason he suffered so much must be because he was being punished for his own sin. No, he took it all for my sin. Can I trust him? Can I depend on him when he did that? And see, as the weight of this reality, this, the weight of his glory, as this, this eternally faithful and merciful servant who he is, who gave himself to such suffering and never flinched or shrunk back from any of it, but set his face like a flint to the cross where he was perfectly and spotlessly and impeccably and utterly faithful as the weight of all of that faithfulness settles on the hearts of God's people as the servant has been speaking these powerful gospel words to us. So picture him now as the weight is settling of how faithful he is Picturing him now in verses 10 and 11, picture him turning to you and and staring you in the face and holding your gaze unwaveringly, saying, this is who I am. This is what I promised to do before you ever came into being. This is what I did for you. Picture him now looking in you in the eye and saying, will you trust me or not? In verses 10 and 11. holding our gaze as the people who have received this grace and steadfast love from Him, who have benefited from everything that He endured, picture Him saying now to every human being, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Will you trust me? Will you fear me? And He tells us what it means to to fear Him, right? In light of His great faithfulness. And he does it by painting a contrast in these last two verses. Here's what it means to fear the Lord. Verse 10, let him who walks in darkness and has no light of his own trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Left to yourself, all you have is darkness to walk through this world. Will you trust this God? Who is this faithful? Will you rely on this God who is this faithful? 
And then he says, behold, all you who try to kindle a fire for yourself, try to light the way for yourself, doing what's right in your own eyes, going after the way that seems right to man, walk by the light of your own fire, walk by the torches that you have kindled, and this you have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. You can trust God or you can trust yourself. It comes down to that. Who do you trust? And what does every decision in your life and what does every moment of your life say as an answer to that question? Who do you trust more? God or yourself? His fire, your fire. His light or your light? The one who fears the Lord obeys the voice of of His servant, the voice of Christ, verse 10 says, and that obedience comes from trusting Him and relying on Him who is and always has been faithful and trustworthy and dependable. Faithfulness to God comes from confidence and trust and reliance upon God's faithfulness to us. That's the message. Isaiah is putting it like this, the one who fears the Lord is obedient to this specific message that the servant of the Lord proclaims, which is this message that he's the one who suffered in our place. That's how faithful he is. The one who fears the Lord lives in submission to the gospel, the good news that this servant of the Lord who is God himself didn't come to be served, but to serve us by laying his life down for us. The one who fears the Lord obeys that word, trusts that word, submits to that gospel reality and relies on the faithful God who spoke that gracious, merciful word and covenanted this this redemption and this mercy before the foundations of the world were ever laid. So see, fearing the Lord doesn't mean living in abject terror of him. We don't fear His wrath anymore. We don't fear His condemnation anymore if we are in Christ Jesus because all of His wrath and all of His condemnation and all of His judgment were poured out in all of its fullness on the Son on that cross. Now, if you're in Him and that's your hope, the one who fears the Lord is the one who stands in awe of His holiness and justice and faithfulness and mercy as it has been put on glorious display on that cross. The one who fears the Lord is the one who approaches Him, draws near to Him, covered in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus, full of deep abiding reverence for the great, almighty, sovereign, holy, righteous, faithful, loving God who He is, And says, I trust you. And I will follow you wherever you call me to go. And I will serve you whatever you call me to do. And I will praise you whatever you ordain for me to endure. Let the one who who walks in darkness and has no light of his own trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. All obedience to God, all honor and glory to God comes from that. All faithfulness to God comes from embracing His faithfulness to us in Christ. But if you try to build your own fire, if you try to light your own way through the darkness of this life and this world, then you will end up in torment. 
And that's a dire warning from the suffering servant. Live instead by His light. Live in the fear of the Lord. Trust in His gospel. Rely on His grace and His truth and His strength and His faithfulness. And you will have life abundantly because He is eternally faithful no matter what. So walk every hour in the light of His truth and in the light of His life and love and rest in Him. He's always with you. If you belong to Christ and He paid every ounce or He paid every single cent of your debt on the cross with every ounce of His life and every drop of His bloodshed, then you can trust Him to never leave you or never forsake you. And you can trust that when you're walking through the deepest waters, it's not because He's condemning you or punishing you. It's because He loves you and He's with you. And His steadfast love never ceases and His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning and His faithfulness is and always will be great. And so no matter what you're going through, you can know outside of yourself because of who He is, what He's promised to do, what He's done, what He will always do, that He will hold you fast. Amen? Let's sing that to Him together with great confidence as we give Him praise. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, how we love You and rejoice in the surety of the Word that You reveal to us and proclaim to us. And how glad we are, Father, to receive and embrace this word by which you have revealed to us your great and unceasing faithfulness to us. Rooted in your character and nature, rooted in your promises and purposes and covenants in the past, rooted and grounded in what the suffering servant came and did for us. Rooted and grounded in the fact that he abides in us and we are in him. And so there can be no condemnation. There can only be hope and life abundantly. And so, Father, help us, no matter what's going on in our world and our lives, help us to trust you and to lean on you, to depend on you, to rely on you, and to receive from you the assurance and the confidence and the strength that we need. And so it is to your praise that we sing now, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.